0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the LitBreaker Ad Network. LitBreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers, it's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker Breaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, Or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. LitBreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's LitBreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's
1: really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
2: And now here's your host, Brad Listing
0: just one person at just one time, right? (laughs) Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is probably pretty nerdy. This is trying desperately to go viral. How are you today? Where are you today? What are you doing? What is your current posture? Are you standing up? Are you in motion? Are you sitting down? Are you exercising? (laughs) Uh, These are the things that I wonder. Anyway, thank you for listening. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles where it is finally raining. Praise Jesus. We're getting a little bit of precipitation in the desert. I know this doesn't mean much to you, especially if you've been in uh, other parts of the country where the winter has been terrible. The snowfall has been plentiful. But out here, I, I really don't, I, you know, I think it may maybe rained once in November a little bit. But it's been like a year since we've gotten any rain. <laughs> and believe it or not, that gets disconcerting after a while, especially when the reports are coming in that the entire state is uh, bone dry. And that, uh, you know, the crop yield is going to, no one cares. You don't care about this, but you know, it's one of those things that you think about when you live in the desert. So it's raining currently as I record this and uh, that feels good to me. My guest today is Adrienne Heron. Her new novel is called a man came out of a door in the mountain. Sounds uh, ominous. Uh, The book is available from Penguin. Adrienne and I, uh, you're going to hear from her in just a moment. We had a good talk. Uh, as most of you probably know, uh, AWP happened this past week. What does that stand for? The association of writing professionals. It's terrible that I don't know that. I think that's what it is. Um, AWP, it happens every year. Writers go to this thing. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, episode on Sunday, March, uh, what second, the day it airs, if you're listening to it on the day that it rolls out, then uh, AWP is still happening. It is unfolding. As I speak So uh, I did not make the trip To Seattle Uh, I did not attend the the, uh, conference But I thought that It might be nice uh, For the purposes of this podcast That I would reach out And talk to some attendees Some people on the ground Some people uh, who are in the shit Who could give me uh, like a You know A first person account So uh, I wound up having a very spirited conversation With several uh, inebriated people who were staying at the uh, HTML Giant House up there in Seattle in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, and uh, it wound up just becoming its own episode because it rolled on. The phone was passed around, and it just felt like I should make it its own show so people could hear that. So, if you want to hear that, it's in the feed. It's a, it's just a podcast. It's, a, it's its own episode. Uh, I spoke with people like Mira Gonzalez, Spencer Madsen, uh, Gene Morgan the managing editor of HTML giant and then uh, a couple of, uh, young men in a hot tub. <laughs> uh, it was fun. It sounded like they were having a lot of fun. I think they were having a lot of fun. I can't imagine that they were uh, faking it. And, uh, you know, it also sounded a little bit unorthodox, uh, with regard to the entire AWP mission. You know, these people were just up there to have fun have a party. And I guess that's how a lot of people do this thing. I'm overthinking it. It's the book fair and you got to pay for a table and you got to sit there and what are you going to do? And like, you know, some people, they just show up, they make a trip out of it to hang out with their friends. They make it simple and enjoyable. So, you know, aside from that, I tried to, uh, talk to some people who were on the ground just to see if I could get correspondence on the ground, try to make some interesting uh, contacts, hear some interesting things. But here's the problem, okay? It's a book fair. It's a com- It's a trade show. <laughs> you know, there's panel discussions. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that it's a hard thing to make interesting on a uh, radio program or a podcast because uh, we're nerds. This is a book nerd. Mecca. It's like book. It's like Burning Man for book nerds or something like that. Uh, so just to give you a quick example, uh, I spoke with a very nice uh, writer and ins- uh, college educator, I believe, college instructor. He's from Boston. His name is Sebastian Stockman, uh, and here's a little bit of uh, our conversation.
1: I am not. I'm not in the book fair. I'm just outside uh, the AWP Award Series Winners Reading, which was. Um sleepy.
0: Okay. So, uh, there's that. And then, uh, I think I asked him, uh, if he had any, uh, highlights, favorite moments.
1: One of the highlights I went to, a, uh, uh, I, I went to a panel yesterday, uh, that Dan Coyce, the, uh, editor at Slate Book Review set up. And it was a bunch of, uh, it was on the good, or it the good, bad review, sort of the well-written, negative review
0: okay so this actually was interesting we had a good uh talk about uh negative reviews we got into it because he had been to this panel all of these uh book critics from various prestigious publications were on this panel and they were all essentially defending their right to negatively review books which i tend to support i mean i've been on the receiving end of uh bad book reviews which feels shitty which i said to sebastian but you know it's a necessity. We can't have all nice book reviews. Who wants to live in that
1: world? And and that was a, that was sort of the uh, that was sort of the you know I mean everybody on that panel was pretty much in uh, in agreement. But it was it was great. You know, it was like a little it was like a mini lit class because he'd asked each um, Dan had asked each uh, panelist to like choose their you know one of their favorite negative reviews, and so they
0: okay. So you basically get the gist. We're talking about a panel discussion. Uh, I don't mean to cut Sebastian off. He was kind enough to talk to me, but there's only so much you can say. You know, you kind of have to be there and experience the thing. And uh, the real action, uh, it seems to be happening off-site and in the hotels. <laughs> or at least one hopes. So, uh, if you went to AWP, if you happen to be in route home and you're listening to this, I hope you had a good time. If you did not go, I hope you had a good time not going. And, uh, otherwise what I think we should just get on with the show. I think that's it. If you want to hear off uh, offsite stuff from AWP Seattle, 2014, just listen to the, the other episode, you know, the special episode with the HTML giant people, that'll give you a taste of what, uh, of what they were up to and what I think a lot of people were up to up there in Seattle. Okay. Uh, and also, uh, you know, you, you're going to hear me talking in today's episode and in, uh, I think Wednesday's episode with, uh, authors who are at AWP, Adrienne, I spoke with from her hotel room in Seattle. So we discuss, uh, AWP a little bit before we, you know, before we get into the heart of the interview, uh, just a natural introduction. So, uh, that's it. I think. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Adrienne Heron. Her new novel, which is now out uh, from uh, Penguin, is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain. And I'm very pleased to have her here. And I think you're going to like hearing from her. Here she is. This is Adrienne Heron. And her new novel, once again, is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain.
2: I am in a room at the Grand Hyatt in downtown Seattle.
0: Okay, so AWP.
2: At AWP, getting ready to go to AWP. I actually just took the ferry. I, I live in uh, Port Townsend, which is on the Olympic Peninsula. It's about an hour's drive and then the ferry ride over. Um, so I just got over a little while ago on the ferry and made my way up uh, to downtown.
0: Okay, so this is like home turf AWP. You haven't had to endure like some sort of hellish cross-country flight or anything, so that right
2: that, exactly that yeah, makes it a little no.
0: it makes it a little bit less painful.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's such an odd thing. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I I go, I've been over this on this show before, and I you know I, I want to be sensitive because I don't want to if people really love it and are having a good time, I don't want to be the guy that sits there and tries to rain on the party or rain on the parade or you
2: whatever. Know- even people that love it—I mean, everybody recognizes it for what it is. In fact, our local, uh, like Seattle's local alternative paper, The Stranger, just published this big thing about the types of people you see it. I mean, AWP is a huge thing to Seattle because we're a book town, or they're a book town, whatever. Sure. Um, but it, it's—but uh, everybody recognizes it's nutty.
0: Okay. Yeah, I feel that way, and, I, and like I just uh, published something on the nervous breakdown the other day, and this guy like. Um God I should look at his name just because that would be rude not to but he wrote a big essay about it and he was talking you know about it in a lot of different respects his name is uh, Anish Shivani and uh you know it's like it, it's like there's an insularity to it like I I guess they're going to have the book fair open to the public this time around but uh, a lot of the people who attend are academics and writers and publishers so it's not right. like like it, it would make more sense to me if it was like, oh my god, this is the one time when like the general public comes and like, <laughs> you know, interacts right. with book people. But it's basically just authors and book people interacting with one another.
2: It, it is like twelve thousand incredibly socially awkward people in one place. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's so, it's so much, you know, weird eye contact and eye contact avoidance and um, <laughs> awkward. Con- I mean, it is really the strangest thing. And we we kind of volunteer to do this, so yeah. it's, it's odd.
0: Yeah, why do you volunteer? I mean, I guess you got to go. You're rolling a book out into the world. but like, if-
2: Yeah, that's why I'm doing it right now. I don't go to it all the time. I've gone to maybe three or four of them. And at this point, I know so many people that, it for me, it's like one of those weird dreams where people from grade school show up and, yeah. you know, get all sorts of, so you just never know who you're looking at. And sometimes it's just fabulous because you've got the drinking partners you've dreamed about for years, you know, the last time you had a great time with people are there. Um, so, and then other times it's just like, oh God, just get
0: me out of here as fast as you can, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, it's going to be a mix with that many people. You're going to have to endure yeah. a little, you know, <laughs> a little of the latter and then hopefully enjoy some of the former Right.
2: So. And everybody feels the same way. So they're all looking at you exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> do you,
1: do you
0: sense, do you sense, uh, competition? Like, do you have, like, can you tell that people feel like kind of an, an intense, uh, level of competitiveness with their fellow writers i mean it must be i mean it's got to be part of the calculation to have like thousands of writers descending upon a city to sort of like mill around in the same conference center and like eyeball one another uh and go to panel yeah. discussions and whatnot and not feel some I, I think some of the you know some people are maybe uh, more sharply competitive than others like do you experience any of that or you sense know- it
2: it. It. Yeah. I. I see. I see it. It's just not in the people that I know at all. I mean, there's. You know, there's a group of sort of newly minted MFAs, for instance, and people that are really trying to come up in the writing world as fast as they can, and um, and there's this deep anxiety in people that have been trying for years and years and, and haven't made it, or are teaching somewhere, and. Um, you know, teaching is always, I thought it's the weirdest, I mean, I, I don't teach, I teach in two universities, MFA programs, but they're low res programs. I'm not a tenured faculty member. I don't have to do committees or anything like that. And I think it's the oddest profession. It's like, it's like war. Um, and everybody in those departments always seems to have these terrible stories. And there's a little bit of that that kind of runs into it. Um, but you well, know, I don't. What do, do you mean?
0: What do you mean exactly? Like competition for tenure track positions and stuff like that?
2: No, no, it's like over paperclip type stuff. It's like the most ridiculous wars you'll ever. I mean, there, there's always this like tension, I guess, between the creative writing and the literature departments because the literature departments think the creative writing departments are bullshit, and the creative writing. Of course, think they're valuable, and that the literature is not offering that much and so there's always this tension between them and who gets funds and things like that but it it goes down to details I mean, I'm not part of this, so I can um, I just hear it and think, oh, it just sounds um, uh, it it just sounds like the oddest most Seinfeldian medieval um, tedium kind of way to go to work <laughs> yes. you know it's just it, it's just odd
0: well i feel, I feel like you know maybe that's just sometimes uh, when people are fixating on these things that seem really inconsequential or tedious, a lot of times I think it's because uh, they're worried about something else. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you're fixated on yeah. pa- if you're fixated on paper clips, it's not the paper clips that are bothering you; it's something else.
2: They're yeah. private agonies. Um, yeah. yeah I, <laughs> have you ever taught, Brad? Do you, I, ever,
0: have you? I have, in 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 a similar way. Like I was never tenure track or anything, but I taught as an adjunct. Um, you know, here in LA at Santa Monica College, so I, I felt, you know, you know, really autonomous. Actually, like I, they just sort of gave me my classes, and I showed up and taught, and really, I really loved the classroom work. Um, you know, the grading and the reading, um, undergraduate short stories and essays and stuff like that, in volume could wear me down just because. <laughs> yeah you know I don't know yeah. that that part of it was not my favorite aspect of it, but i don't I think that's the case for most people like I like the well, the, cl- the classroom stuff,
2: yeah, and I think that's what you were saying before about something else bothering people when they get into these little um battles uh, I think that's part of it. I think showing up in the classroom every day for a lot of people teaching the same thing, hearing the sound of your voice, saying the same things and um and just basically being alone too a lot of the time it really does wear people down um and if you have ambitions in other directions i'm sure it comes out in strange ways
0: yeah well and you know it's interesting you talk about being alone because that's such a big part of being a writer and i've been thinking about this lately um because i have you know i really like people and i like talking to people but yet uh I find myself oftentimes being like, ah, no, I'd rather not go out. I'll just stay home. <laughs> or, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll avoid AWP or whatever it is. And these things seem to be in conflict with one another. I, I, I feel like that's maybe like a central tension to the writing life, which is maybe why I gravitated toward it, where you're trying to connect with people and yet you do that by sitting alone <laughs> in a room and, and trying to, you know, string together a story of some kind. But do you have any kind of, like, inner tension in that way with respect to socializing with people? Like, do you consider yourself <laughs> – are, are you, ad- are you so. adept at it? Is this, I mean, am I stating the obvious here?
2: No, I, no, I, I agree with you in many ways. I mean, I, I have the advantage of um, not living in any kind of rarefied community. Um, I don't live in a city. I live in a small town. It's a, you know, a boat-building kind of town. My husband is a mechanic who owns a garage. Um, our friends, everybody works, you know, doing different things. I have lots of writer friends, and I have artist friends and all that, musician friends, but everybody's got another job somewhere. So it's our conversations are not just about writing, for instance, and the time I spend alone is really the time I'm spending working on the writing, trying to get better at it, and then when I go out i mean yeah i'm i'm when i'm at home I'm, i don't i don't go out very much or do very much unless somebody stops by or um you know whatever i'm in the same way I'll, I'll make a choice not to go do things but but you can't help it when you live in a small town. You're just part of it. You go to the store. Everybody knows you. You go to the bank. Whatever you do, you take a walk. You see 20 people you know. So you're in, you're involved anyway. So you just have to live through it.
0: Are you? I mean, does that bother you? Because I've, I've noticed this about friends of mine who live in small towns, that that's the case. Like, they can't leave their house without running into people and having, like, 15 yeah. different conversations, whereas I live in Los Angeles, and... I leave my house, and like anonymity is almost a guarantee. You know, you can just blend, or you're just stuck in your car, so you're boxed off from everybody else. But um, do
2: you you like that?
0: I do. (laughs) In fact, I'll take you one further. My favorite thing is to be in a foreign country (laughs) where where nobody like I can't speak the language. Nobody can talk to me anyway. I'm just like great, perfect. You know, and I can just blend and watch. But you know, I do envy sometimes, at least mentally, this idea of having a, a stronger sense of community. And, you know, my friend lives in, uh, my friends live in Crested Butte up in Colorado, uh, which is a tiny ski town, beautiful. Uh, but I w- you know, I went and visited them and we walked out into town and my buddy and I are walking down main street or whatever it's called, you know, this, the heart of town. And we were just going to, I think we were going to brunch or whatever it was, you know, but it took us like 45 minutes to get yeah. a half a mile, <laughs> you know, like, right. it was because yeah. everybody stopped and like, and for him, he's so used to it. Like he just stopped and talked and. You know, I'm, I guess, more uh, acclimated to city living or whatever. And I was like, what are we doing? Like, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, there's something nice about that. He's not in a hurry. He's less time focused. It's not, you know, he's more patient. And and he's got neighbors that he actually knows and all that stuff.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's times when you really hate it. And there's times when you're just so grateful for it. It's like a different kind of connection. Plus, you know, I've been in the town long enough that I've watched people get old and, you know, kids grow up and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's pretty um, stunning, actually. It, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, that's what life's all about. But it's just this, always this marvel. Of wow, I get to see this show in front of me and see these characters develop, and um, it's pretty interesting sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, no, and it gives you a sense of rootedness. And you know, I live in Los Angeles, so hearing you talk about having friends who aren't constantly jabbering about like creative life uh, also sounds sort of nice. (laughs) Where you know, in Los Angeles, everyone's I mean, I guess people are talking about the film and television business more than they are literary concerns, but. Um, right. <laughs> you know, the, the, the creative arts are the, the main industry in this town. So it's kind of inescapable and it can get uh, exhausting in its own way. You know, everyone's doing it in this town. And uh, I've talked to authors who have lived in places like this. You know, I've talked to like Brooklyn authors who have, you know, done their time in Park Slope or whatever. And then they move away and they get themselves at a remove and they're in a place where they're kind of the only writer in town or, you know, they, they're they a decided minority and they're, they're not surrounded by people trying to do the same thing and they found it really, you know, liberating.
2: Yeah, I wondered if they would miss it, because um, from afar, places like Brooklyn, look, um, they look both intense and, and kind of nourishing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I don't think there's a right call. I think it's just I mean, I feel like it's whatever, you know, some people have uh, preferences, and then I think some of it, too, is just you get used to it. You know, I've moved around yeah. enough to know that like you can adjust to anything. It just takes about a year, and maybe you had you like one place better than the other. But I, I never thought I would live in L.A., and I've adjusted to it and find myself liking it. And um, I've also lived in small towns, and I like that. And I, I just think that I think that's it. You know. Yeah. So, uh, what about you in the Pacific Northwest? Is this where you're from, like born and raised?
2: No. No, I was born in Philadelphia, oh. and I lived back there, and um, and in New Jersey um, okay. through high school, and um, yeah. So, this, but I married a Canadian, um, and who was from out here, and just wanted to hightail it back to the Northwest as fast as he could. We married pretty young, and so we've been how, out here a long time.
0: How old were you when you married?
2: Twenty-one.
0: Oh wow, that is young.
2: Yeah, it is now. Then it, it wasn't, it didn't seem, uh, maybe it was, I don't know. I don't know, we
0: just, um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, things have changed. I do I do feel like nowadays, I mean, I'm 38, so I feel like my generation, most of my friends got married in their, you know, late 20s was as early as it got, really. Right, um, right. But more and more, it's like, you know, people are getting, it's, it seems like it just keeps getting pushed back and people start having kids like in their late 30s. And, um, you know, my mom and dad, Uh, I want to say my mom had a baby when she was 22, which seems incredible to me Uh, because when I think of myself at 22, (laughs) I think I still was a baby, you know, but it's just different times.
2: Well, yeah, and sometimes when we tell people when we got married, it's it's like an Appalachian story. You know, we have to say, no, 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 it, really, it didn't really happen in middle school, because to them it feels like it all, you know, we were just way, way too young. To us at the time, we were, you know, we're already cruising the country and doing things. It was just part of the fabric of stuff.
0: Sure. So did you have a big adjustment to make going from, like, living in Philly and Jersey and suddenly being in the Pacific? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I remember the first time we drove out here, um, my husband, Allie, uh, was really – he wanted to take me to see the Pacific. So we drove to the coast. And, and you know, I'm a Philadelphia Jersey girl kind of person, and I'm thinking, you know – down the shore where we used to go and, and, you know, cut school and go and hang out on the beach all day and it would be hot and all that. And, and we drove out to the beach here on the West end and all of a sudden, we're getting into deeper and deeper fog. Um, and then we're on the beach, and there are, like, creatures. There are, like, these birds and things all over the place. You can't see anything in front of you. And I was just like, get me the hell out of here. It was really scary the first few times. I did. I had no appreciation for well, what I now have appreciation for. I just want to get out.
0: I need to spend time in the Pacific Northwest. I haven't spent any time in Seattle. I've been to Portland uh, very briefly years ago but like it's just a part of the it's a part of the country that I want to see and That's uh, oh, there, great. There's something sort of spectacular and then like that that fog in the woods and the gloominess, not the gloominess but um, it's
1: gloomy. <laughs> it's yeah, really I mean cool. it's
0: gloomy but there's also something sort of like magical about it. It feels sort yes. of like uh you know some sort of like hobbit like world. <laughs> if that's the yeah. if that's the right way of putting it but Uh, it also seems like, uh, writerly, like it might be a good place for a writer to hunker down. I think of, you know, Seattle and I think we were talking before we came on the air about how it's a book town, which I really do believe it is, you know, Portland and Seattle, um, maybe as a function of the environment and the climate, you know, people really read there and, and it's a big part of the culture in ways that it might not be elsewhere and, um, I don't know. It seems like a nice, beautiful and, spot. And, and,
2: yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think it's a pretty vibrant place um, in that we're not really bound to what anybody... Um, I mean, to, to publish things, definitely you start thinking you know, about New York, but most of the time, it, it's really the conversation is, a, is on a different track entirely than what's going on in New York or L.A. or, or any other place. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting because you're not hearing the same line all the time. Not that that's all the same line. I don't mean to dismiss New York and LA altogether, but it's just a different place.
0: Sure. And and then what about um you know the, the proximity, especially in Port Townsend, because you're north of Seattle, right? Yeah. So, okay. So when you live in Port Townsend and you have proximity to the Canadian border, um, does that? Yeah,
2: we're we're not too far away.
0: Okay, but I'm, I'm interested because uh, you know American and Canadian culture can sometimes get conflated. There's obviously a lot of similarity. Uh, but you live, you know, near a, an international border, which a lot of people yeah. in the United States Isn't don't. Isn't that cool? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like if, if the shit hits the fan, you could theoretically flee. <laughs> we
2: just, we just dive and go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, do, do you no, you I I'd actually, <laughs> I actually just was in Vancouver last week. I had to give a reading at the downtown public library, um, and my novels is set in, in Canada. So I was really nervous about this. Um, but, you know, it's, it's such a different place, even though it's the same. There's just a, just a different um, ethos. Like, just people are, they're just, it, there's a different kind of directness and a different kind of um, uh, moving away, what's the word for moving away from the subject? Evasiveness, I, I guess. Um, and, uh, but, you know, and the other thing which is odd is that I read a lot of Canadian writers, for instance, But not that many really cross the border. Our border is porous one way. Like American lit goes way up there. U.S. fiction is all over the place there. But we don't get that many Canadians. We get maybe four or five.
0: Well, we don't get very many authors from outside. I mean, you know, Americans don't read international fiction or international literature in the way that we probably should. Is that right? I feel like I feel like yeah. I, that's correct. But I, I,
2: yeah, I think I, when I when I teach, I definitely see that because I'll mention even British writers, and you know, if they're not from the region, some of my students are from, or they're not the current, um, you know, hot writer, they haven't heard of, you know, you know, any, you know, lots of people. <laughs> I didn't even right. think of names, but well, um, you know.
0: Well, I want to say I think I'm like like mentally recalling and I could be incorrect, but I'm recalling something regarding like the Nobel Prize in literature and how an American hasn't won it in a long time. And it was somebody commenting on that and how Americans don't have, um, you know, much to say about like the international conversation in the way that like authors from other countries do or they, do you know what I'm saying? There's like a lack of outward looking interest maybe. Um, And I don't know, that makes some sense to me considering like a small percentage of our population even like has a passport you know we don't go around we don't go look out as much as people in other countries might
2: right but we, we do steal tv shows from other countries
0: right that seems to be a big trend you know? yeah you take yeah the, you take the template like i want to say house of cards was a british show
2: it was definitely yeah and the killing <laughs> was what um a danish show i don't know if you ever watched the killing no, no.
0: what is the but- killing
2: the Killing is set in Seattle, the, the American version. So oh, okay. it, it, it was, yeah, yeah. So it was one of those that, um, but I believe it. let's see if I can get my gossip right. I believe it's uh, Camilla, Prince Charles' wife's favorite show, okay. is The Killing, the Danish version. All
0: right. I'll have to check it out. I mean, have you, have, I've, been, <laughs> I've been watching House of Cards, like I, I got into that one. I got really sick last summer, like unusually, like bad flu, where I like had the chills and I was just in bed. And it was so bad that I sent my wife and daughter like out of the house for like three days just to like quarantine myself. And uh, I was like, I don't want you guys. I, yeah, I don't want you guys to get this. Just leave me alone. <laughs> you ever you ever have that where you have the flu and yeah. you're just like you're just like stay yeah. away from me. I just want to be ill and private. And so they left and went away for the weekend, and I just laid in bed and I watched the entire first season of that show in like you know this long flu ridden binge. So I got into it. And uh, it feels like a really, it feels like a really high end soap opera, which might yeah, not which it's pretty might, Yeah, it's like, I mean, it feels like especially as this second season progresses, I'm like this, because I grew up in a house uh, with sisters and a mom who watched a lot of soap operas. So like the formative narrative experience of my childhood was like days of our lives. <laughs>
2: Did you did you follow them yourself? Did you know
0: who they were talking about? Oh my oh my god! I, I grew up watching Days of Our Lives, uh-huh. Another World, Santa Barbara, General Hospital, and all my children. Uh, I'm not even kidding.
2: Well, wow. you you had the full uh, palette there. Yeah,
0: my sister still tapes them. She still or DVRs them now, but she still watches.
2: They're still it. are they still on? They're, I didn't even think they were still on television.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but I remember like not too long ago, she was still watching it and like you know reading soap opera digest. Like she gets into it. It's relaxing for her, but. Um, oh,
2: so you're watching House of Cards, going, oh Claire Underwood, I know who to is. Right.
0: There, I mean, it's a lot of the same tropes, but it's but it's dressed up in this like really like David Finchery high you know yeah. highbrow cinematic. But it's like this is just a soap opera to me anyway.
1: Right.
0: Um, so anyhow, back but to the, oh,
1: Yeah,
2: ahead. I was just going to say the original House of Cards, the one that that the British one, has a, a different kind of um, feel to it. It's a little a little more humorous in ways.
0: Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, yeah. I, you know, I can't bag on it too hard because I've watched, you know, almost like 50 episodes of this thing at this point or whatever. Oh, it
2: is so dismal. When you binge on that thing and you get up from the couch and you look out and the light from the day is gone and all that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And and you're in this sort of gray, you know, underworld wood world. Um, It, it, it just like, it it hits something dark in your soul. I, I've done that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's what I want to talk about, because this is how I can tie it back into writing, because this is where I think, this is where I think the show speaks to something in my own experience that gnaws at me. And it's that, you know, you find there is like this kind of weird moral ambiguity that the show produces where you kind of find yourself liking these people in some weird way, even though they're horrible and they're doing, they're doing horrible things. You have this like weird respect for the way they operate. It's fun to watch them play chess or whatever it is. Um, And I find myself looking out at life in general and looking at how people do what they do and who succeeds. And if you wanted to like, you know, narrow it down to the literary life, I find myself wondering if you have to be an operator like that. Like, to what extent do you have to be able to manipulate people, uh, network, uh, strategically and charm people? And you know what I'm saying. Like, do you ever think to yourself, my God, is this what it takes in, in life to be this cold blooded or to be this? Um, I don't know. Uh,
2: well, it probably depends on what your ideas of um, success are, you know, or, or winning. I mean, those that, are pretty linear ideas, I think, in, in House of Cards and other things, and even in writing sometimes on what success means um, and, and and how you know when you, you're making it or you're winning or whatever. And I, I don't think there's any one way to do that.
0: So what does success mean to you as a writer? Because that's a good point, you know, like... I think a lot of us think like, oh, I'll be published in the New Yorker or like I'll have, I'll be making a living from what I write. Like what, what is success?
2: Um, you know, I, all that stuff figures in. I mean, all of us, if we were published in the New Yorker, probably would feel great about ourselves for ten minutes or so until somebody said, "Ah, you know, it was a pretty good new You read something on a blog or whatever. It was pretty good. New Yorker story wasn't the best, and <laughs> you'd feel terrible about yourself again. Um, but you know, I, for me, the my best moments as a writer have come either by myself when I've finished something or I've written something, or I've just totally subsumed by. Um, chills really real absolute chills like physical chills where i think something is here and it's not it's bigger than me and i like that feeling even if it's just two sentences it's like this is bigger than than adrian um and the other time is when i'll have somebody who's read it whatever i've written and just get it on even a different level than i've intended, but it 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 like hit them in a way and and that's just this this total magic there's um Oh, you know, there's something called the secret sympathy about things affecting um, one thing affecting another through a space that appears to be empty. Uh, It's kind of sympathetic magic. And that moment when somebody's read something that I've written and they they feel something, that's sympathetic magic to me. And and that's success to me. That feels great. Um, The other stuff is great for about five minutes, really, and then you start feeling, at least I feel, Pretty self conscious, and I just want people to stop looking at me.
0: <laughs> so, you do, know, really, truly, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, that's. I think that's health. That sounds healthy. Um, do you have like a, a, do, does the book sales um, does that factor into your calculation at all? <laughs> like,
2: oh, you, um, my first book was a book Shirt stories, which I didn't know at all that. They don't sell Um, and it was, uh, you know, it it won a prize and then it was published by Houghton Mifflin and um, I just thought that was wonderful and great but I didn't, you know, I was kind of oblivious to the whole uh, success part of publishing and uh, the novel I've just published is being published in a bigger way and it's a novel and people are actually reading it so uh, that's gratifying Um, as far as the numbers, I have no idea.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, but, I mean like, I, I don't know, I think some people out there, uh, you know, when they're defining success for themselves as a writer, they might be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, numerical about it, you know, like I have to sell X amount of copies, I have to be making X amount of money, uh, maybe, yeah. you know, I don't know. I, maybe,
2: That's if you're trying to, live. you know, I know I can't live off writing, I really can't, and, um, and I've done a ton of odd jobs over the years, I mean, really, some of them very odd, and, um and and now I teach, and that, of course that's that's a big money maker too. <laughs> I say that laughing, um, but um, but you know, I, I we live a really humble lifestyle, and in all good ways. I mean, it's just it's not like. Um, I wouldn't say that we're environmentally conscious and that's why we do although you know of course we try to think about blah 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 it's just that we don't have a lot of um a lot of stuff that we need we have everything we need you know and right. and everything we want pretty much and um uh as long as we can go have uh, a beer or do things you know hang out with friends and i'm making this sound so drab but um no we we have a pretty good life so i don't i don't need You know, I, I, this sounds so stupid. I don't really need to make a lot of
0: money. Well, that's good though. You know, like that's like, I think there's like a real value in simplicity because, uh, it it can be, especially if you're living in a place like Los Angeles where the cost of living is so high. Like I come up against this where you're like, holy shit, like how am I going to make the math work? Um, it'd be nice to not have such, um. difficult math <laughs> you know yeah, what i'm saying exactly and, and to be able to afford a, you know if, if you can find a way to make it work the difficulty of course is that if you move to this place where uh the cost of living is lower a lot of times there's less opportunity and you have to find a way right. to fit yourself into the community and you know that exactly. that can be the challenge yeah. but um
2: and that's exactly what you do i mean when i we first came to port townsend there was nothing there i mean it, there's really nothing there there was you know some wooden boat building there was a mill um and I think uh, my husband, Allie, drove like an hour to this other town, Port Angeles, every day, just there, an hour there and an hour back for one job. And, you know, for after but after a while, you sort of kind of create your own jobs. And I think there was one point where I had four jobs, um, but one of them was working at Gray Wolf Press, which had just started there, had been there a little while, and because uh, it, it started in Port Townsend. Oh, it did? And, yeah. I didn't yeah, know Yeah, it was that. there for a long time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was there till about nineteen ninety something. Why did it leave? Uh, because it was a nonprofit, and Minnesota had much better funding for nonprofits. Washington had nothing. Okay. So Scott Walker who started it just started. He opened an office in uh, Minnesota, and then he started commuting back and forth, and it damn near killed him. So eventually, he moved it to Minnesota. Um, but Copper Canyons and Port Townsend, too, the poetry press, and there were a couple other presses, and, you know, it's a little town. At that point, it was, like, 7,000 people. Right. So it was pretty dynamic, um, and everybody's making their own, their own way, you know, doing one thing or another, starting this, starting that. You could start anything. You could buy a house for $30,000. That's if you were a rich person, you could go buy the house, you know. Wow. And uh, so it was a place to get. Now it's not like that. It's gotten gentrified like crazy, but... Um, But at that time, it gave everybody a chance to do things.
0: Do people who work in Seattle commute and live in Port Townsend?
2: Uh, Not so much. It's a long haul. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. I I mean,
2: you know, there's a lot of uh, what we call Microsoft millionaires. They're probably billionaires by now or whatever. There's people that work in the tech industry that have weekend homes or something out there. Or they might stay there part of the time or, you know, something like that.
0: That's where they have, like... Like, you know, think sessions or whatever about, like, the next great yeah, gadget. Yeah, okay.
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: okay, so how did you become uh, – let's talk about how you became a writer. Like, do you come from writerly parents? Like, do you have an artistic family?
2: Uh, God, no. No, I come from – my dad was Polish, my mother's Irish, Philadelphia people. I think the books that – the real happening books in my parents' library were things like James Michener. Yeah. Um, that they got through maybe Book of the Month Club when they belonged once or twice. But my dad was a doctor. He had a lot of scientific books um, and a great PDR, you know, that I loved going through. And um, that's the physician's desk reference that right. describes every drug. That was always exciting because you could find out what the contraindications were of something like, oh, if you take this, this will happen, or, or this could happen. It was like kind of the precursor of those Viagra commercials that come on every night. <laughs> um, but it was a great book; I loved it. Um, but no, they didn't. My parents are not great readers, or you know, musicians, or artists. They're, you know, my dad was a doctor, my mother was a nurse.
0: Okay. And so do you, can you, but you can't, tra- you can't trace it. Like we, neither of them like were latent writers or like secretly harbored some sort of artistic ambition.
2: Um, not really. I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of us who are raised Catholic, but I don't know how you were raised. Catholic. Um, but yeah. And you know, there's something about that, um, you know, especially Philadelphia Catholic um, where you're, you're constantly aware that there are other stories that aren't being told. Like you'll be in a room and there'll be secrets. Um, and so if you're a certain kind of kid, you want to know what the secrets are. And I think that's what probably pulled me more towards telling stories than anything else is being raised Catholic.
0: Okay. So, uh, where did you go to school? You, did you stay out East, I guess?
2: Oh God, I'm one of those people that went to like 14 different colleges before I finally got a degree. Actually, I think there were only three, but, um, I started out at, um, Sarah Lawrence. All right and um, bopped around for a while and finally got a degree in English literature because they had the most credits in that um, and then went off years later and got an MFA um, from Warren Wilson.
0: Okay. So, but, like, why did it take you long? Were you just kind of, were you a wild uh, young? Yeah. You were.
2: I, I was for a little while, yeah. I mean, here I had, you know, I, I, I met my husband when I was in high school.
0: I'm sorry, what did you say?
2: I met my husband when I was in Oh, when, um, when We were, were not married in high school. Let me just clarify that part. Um, but I met him when we were really young, and so there were always things we wanted to do or go here, or, you know, cross the country, or live in Vermont for a while, or you know, whatever.
0: So wait, but and, uh, if, he, if he's from Canada, how did how did you guys meet? If you were out east?
2: Well, his father was a really famous physicist um, who worked at Bell Labs in New Jersey. Okay. So I met him when they they were living there.
0: And he's a famous he physicist? At, what, did, what did he do that made him a famous physicist?
2: A famous physicist? He um, This this is what I know. He worked at Bell Labs, and he was head of the Solid State Device Laboratory, which is microwaves and things like that. But he developed, um, he did all the groundwork for the maser and the laser, and he developed the electronic bubble, which is the base of every computer chip. Um, so he was kind of a really big deal in the physics world. My God. Yeah.
0: He's like an He's enabled like modern life to exist. Then, right? I mean, yeah,
2: yeah. I blame him for a lot.
0: <laughs> right. We finally also, we finally he, found the guy we can blame for the internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. But he also introduced me to the beauty of Ziploc bags. I have this major love for Ziploc bags. My father-in-law used to put everything in a Ziploc bag. You know, if he was going to give you a business card, he'd probably put it in a Ziploc bag. He's safe. <laughs> and I've, I've developed, since he died, I've, I've developed that that love for Ziploc bags.
0: They are pretty awesome when you think about it. Yeah,
2: they are. And, and they're amazing. You
0: know, some things like the design is just perfect. You're like, okay, this, this works. Right,
2: now yeah. they have the zipper thing, so you don't even have to, you know, make it work. You just right. zip it on. Right. Yeah. It's
0: extraordinary. Yeah. So, and yeah. by the way, I have a young child, so we're ziplocking a lot of things. I feel like...
2: Good, smart. Yeah. Really smart.
0: Because <laughs> what the world needs now is more plastic bags.
2: <laughs> right. Well, you know, you just have your collection.
0: Yes. You try to re. You rotate them. it. Uh, well, you- <laughs> um, okay. So you meet your husband in Jersey, then he wants to go back uh, west
2: Northwest, yeah.
0: Um, so you guys dated throughout your college years. And did you do, I mean, were you a, a wild, I mean, you said you were kind of wild. Like, what did that, what does that mean?
2: I was wild younger. I played music when I was um, a young person, like from the age of really young, like 13, 14, I was singing and playing music outside New York and in New York. And um, and uh, the fact, that's one of the reasons I went to Sarah Lawrence. I had made like audition tapes and things like that. And, you know, um, you and say, so you I did say. a lot of <laughs> Well, I did then. I sang a lot then. Now it's kind of like a runner, you know, who was great in high school and then gets out and tries it now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really I really loved the thing. And um, so I, that put me in a crowd that was much older than me um, and doing lots of interesting things and kind of was the wild and crazy person until I was about 18 or 19. And then, then I started to settle down.
0: <laughs> well, see, that's – I mean, I feel like – were you? Were, did you? Did you uh, grow up in Philly? Like, were you a city kid, or were you? No,
2: no. I did. I was more childhood in Philly, and I went to high school in New Jersey.
0: Okay, but did you yeah. have? Was this like Jersey, like right outside of New York City, or was this South Jersey?
2: Um, kind of about maybe an hour outside of New York.
0: Okay, because I just I have this theory that people who grow up with like access to these big, uh, you know, these big cities, they tend to be wilder at younger ages and get it out of their system, and then suburban kids That's like different. me. You're- What's that?
2: Yeah. I said, that's a great theory. I like that theory.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, suburban kids like me, like, we finally get to college and then we go nuts. But yeah. I knew kids who were, like, you know, raised in Manhattan or whatever. And by the time, like, they were a lot calmer. <laughs> they, they'd already gotten it out of their system. Like right. they've, you-
2: they've been traveling the subway at 2 in the morning since they were 11. No, I, yeah.
0: I, I literally had a friend who was, like, he was, like, the calmest, nicest most organized, just like he had his shit together in college in a way that almost nobody I knew did. He got married when he was in college. Um, it was, and they're still married. Like, go. yeah, it was bananas. Yeah. And 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 he was like telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, like I committed arson when I was fourteen. I, like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know there were crazy things. I mean, even as a little kid. I mean, we. I remember I have older brothers and um, neighbor kids and the whole deal. I remember. Uh, climbing over the roof of a factory, you know, and having glass fall in, and one of us taking the rope and shimmying down. We did all kinds of stuff, you know, that were just a little wilder and crazier than um, people that I've met since. I thought everybody had childhoods like that, and some, you know, there are a group that do and love to regale you with it, but um, not not everybody had that. A lot yeah. of people are in the rec room, right?
0: <laughs> or the yeah. shop, or the shopping mall, or whatever it was. But
2: right, um, yeah.
0: So this music uh, that you were playing, like, was it rock and roll?
2: No. It was, well, sort of, it was like folk blues. Okay. It was, it was, um, and I wrote a lot of my own stuff, which tells you a lot right there. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I was really fortunate in that I, I had, um, lucked into some really good musician friends, so they taught me more than I would have learned anywhere else. And, and I got to play in cool spots with them. And so it was fun. So
0: what was the name of like one of your original numbers?
2: Oh, God. I don't know. I remember my most embarrassing one. Unfortunately, like, it's hard to remember lyrics or anything. I mean, sometimes I can, I can get back and I can play whole songs again. But my most embarrassing one was something called Museum Man, which was about picking up men in museums, which, of course, I had tons of experience in. I don't know where that one came from.
0: That is the but, place to do it. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So let's get to you're, you're young. You're You're married. You're in the Pacific Northwest. Suddenly, uh, you're acclimating yep. to that. At what point do you start uh, writing?
2: Um, you know, I, I wrote a little bit in college, and I wrote um, and published a few little prose pieces, places. Just they were almost like prose poems, I guess. I I, I I have lost them completely, which is a really good thing because in my mind they can remain wonderful. Um, and I think they were pretty awful. Um, and but then. Uh, when I was working at Grey Wolf, I showed Scott some of my work. He was the publisher then and, and he was really supportive. He was he was good about it. And at one point I just decided I had I have two sons too and my kids were little and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna go back and do something but it's you know here i am out in port townsend um no not a lot of money or anything like that so warren wilson with his low res program just popped up on my radar that and uh bennington and i decided to go to warren wilson and um so went there met all these wonderful famous writer people who were unbelievably encouraging and supportive like who and um i studied with andrea barrett and Margot Livesey, and um Rick Rizzo was there when I was there, Charlie Baxter, um, Tony Nelson, Sonia Nelson, um, Joan Silber was one of my teachers too, um, uh, just a ton of Jim Shepard, uh, ton of really great people there at the time. And, um, so it was, it was pretty stunning. It was like you go from nothing into, you know, the top group, you know, and, and, and those are the people that are, you know, being your support and teaching you, um, I think I went to Warren Wilson with one story. I'd written one full finished story, and it wasn't really even that great. Um, and in the first semester I worked with Margot Lizzie, I probably wrote eight stories, um, you know, just a lifetime's worth at that point. And most of them made them into my first collection. Um, so um, that was, it was a really amazing um transformation that, that that warren wilson mfa for me i know people talk about mfa programs but for me it was just uh two years to write without anybody asking me what i was doing um right. two years to just to fully commit to something i mean when do you get two years to fully commit to something?
0: well i was just going to say because this is all the rage right now a uh, lot i mean it's always been all the rage in writerly circles but there's this book out called mfa yeah, yeah. versus like that's getting a lot of play and um, right. I mean, it's, it's kind of a tired conversation, but you know, it's there. And I, I think that what you're saying is totally accurate. I mean, if nothing else, like my God, it just gives you a chance to focus your energies and to be around other writers. And you know, if there were other options where there was money or where there was at least the luxury of time, then show them to me for God's sake, I'd, yeah. I'd be happy to go live somewhere, uh, you know, without expenses and, Write and think and everything else, but this is this is the only show in town, really, for writers.
2: Well, you know, and something like Warren Wilson, which is a low residency program, so I still worked. I still had two jobs (laughs) in Port Townsend, and I had two kids, and um, my husband had his business that I was helping him with. That so there's like all this craziness that's going on at home that I'm still working and doing. While I'm in school, because the the, school, the the residencies are twice a year, and in between you're not teaching freshman comp or anything like that, you're working your tail off, but you're also doing other work for money. Right. Um, so it was your your real life is is entwined with it. It's not like you're in on a campus for two years and then you go out to real life. You're you're just in it. You have to learn how to write. And live at the same time. Well, let's,
0: let's talk so- about that. Let's talk about that because I think this is something that a lot of writers uh, are, are dealing with or, or they look ahead in their lives and they think about how they might deal with it. But, you know, working two jobs, having two young children and getting your MFA and writing eight short stories in a year, it seems like an incredible amount of work to be done, you know, to be doing. So uh, how do you how do you manage that, you know, as a mother and then as somebody who's working day jobs and then trying to get work done? Like, what did it look like for you from a time management perspective? Did it ha- did it actually help to only have a very limited amount of hours that you could focus on your writing? Did it concentrate yeah, you?
2: Yeah, I think it did, absolutely. I, I mean, first you have to have the right, like, people around you, the right family, the right, you know, whatever, because I don't know how supportive everybody is in those situations. Um, you go to these the MFA programs and just, like, relationships are collapsed all over the place. Um, but uh, for me it was great, and it was that 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 tiny amount of time that was just so sacred that you didn't even think about it. You didn't even think about it. I, I never, I just would start working.
0: Oh, wait, I'm losing you. Hello?
2: Here. Oh, okay. Know if you, can hear.
0: you just cut out. You, you cut out. you said you just start working.
2: Yeah, you just start working. I used to wish um, my mailman was a friend of mine, Rick, and I used to wish that he would just split my lunch into the mailbox because I didn't want to even get up from the desk. It was my only time. Um, but uh, and I have a friend, um, Gina Oshner, another writer who has like four kids, and she's written all these you know books and stories, amazing stuff. She's been in the New Yorker, um, and she just. Does it when she's she writes in her head she does all kinds of stuff um, that I couldn't do at the time but I think everybody everybody finds the space they need we're not ever going to be like somebody like John Updike with you know a wife or someone to take care of everything or Cheever or whatever to dress in his suit and go to his office and um, so we just do what we can um, but you, have, you know with,
0: have, <laughs> have, well I was gonna say have lessons from that period where you had uh, so much going on, and you were writing in this manner where there was no kind of like throat clearing or preamble. You just sat down and you started to work. Like, has that carried over? Is that how you? Is that how it still is for you?
2: Um, for a while, and then I got more time, and then things started to not be as productive. To be honest, um, as soon as I started adding on, as I say, I teach in two MFA programs and do a bunch of other stuff. As soon as I started adding on more of that. Um, yeah, I, I have my time now. I just work like crazy when I have it.
0: So okay. So is it just you write whenever you can, or do you have like a, a really regimented schedule where you're up before dawn and fitting it in? No,
2: there? I can't do that. I, I, I really appreciate that people can do that, but you know, I found out the best time for me to write is something like um, three o'clock in the afternoon when all the work is done that I have to do for other people, uh-huh. and then I can just go away from any kind, anywhere near an internet connection, for instance and just write for a while until, you know, um, cocktail time, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> and pretty much. I,
0: and then I start drinking heavily.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Um, no. They, you know, and then at night sometimes I'll go back and, and revise more um, because it's much easier to, you know, sit down with the work in hand and revise. And I could do that sometimes later at night, but... Yeah, you know, I I love guys who talk about – it's mostly guys who talk about how many words. Like I have a friend when I was writing the novel and he'd say, how many words you write? How many words? (laughs) And like I don't know whether this is just a guy thing, Um, but no women writers I know talk about it in terms of words. Interesting. Um,
0: That's interesting because I've I've done word count before just because it keeps me accountable. Like I look at it – like I'll just keep a sheet of paper next to my computer and I'll say, well, like, you know – if I, got word, if I got words, then I'm in the black, and I can count them. And if I didn't, then I'll write it in red. And I just that way it's externalized, and I can look at it and know right. if I, I can't bullshit myself. Then do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. but if yeah, it'd be weird if it's like a guy thing to be like you know.
2: I think it, I think it, from my perspective it's a guy thing, but and I really and or, or you know. I don't know how many hours you're putting in at the, and to me that just didn't wasn't what I was doing, but I was talking to one friend and he was doing his, you know, words and all that stuff, and, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to try this at the time, and I thought I'm just going to try it. Well, the word thing didn't work for me, but putting in an hour, just, just an hour, and pages, how many pages. So what I started doing is, okay, I can quit every day after four pages. <laughs> I gave myself four pages, um, and it was perfect. It worked great, I mean it it gave me a lot of material and um four, page, and it was
0: enjoyable. four Well, four pages is a lot
2: yeah it could be a lot or it could be really fast but okay. i'd quit like if i wrote four pages in you know a short amount of time i'd be like i'm out of here i'm done and i'd leave and go do things go for a bike ride or something and other days it would take me hours and hours
0: that's it i mean four pages i want i guess that's about that's about 1000 words <laughs>
2: I have no idea how many words it is. Listen
0: to me, listen to me, automatically trying to quantify it in my head. (laughs) It seems more relaxed to do it your way. Like, I could find myself counting words and getting obsessed with that, but, you know, it's, but it worked, you know, it it makes me... Yeah,
2: whatever works. Yeah. Whatever works.
0: You got to come up with your own formula. So, um, did you, uh, you said that you, you know, these stories that you were writing when you were in Margot Livesey's, uh, you know, workshop at Warren Wilson wound up in your first collection. So how did you transition from being in this uh, low-res grad, you know, MFA program to finding yourself uh, in print?
2: In print? I published um, one of my first stories that was kind of a bigger story um, was published in a story magazine. I won their contest, their short, short contest, which was a big deal at the time and um, got paid a bucket of money, um, and, uh, and got really high visibility, and um, at that point, you know, I didn't, it, it, I sound pretty ignorant, but this is one of the gifts of living in a small town, and even though I worked for a small press and all this other stuff, I wasn't really all that um, savvy about sending to magazines or thinking, you know, that um, they weren't going to get published, so I would just send things out, and things started to get published, and um, and then pretty soon I had this collection together.
0: And then how did it get? How did the collection get published?
2: The collection got published in a really fortuitous way. Um, I had, um, let's see, I got a call from uh, Swanee, which is one of the places I teach now at their School of Letters and MFA program, but I got a call from, you know, the SWANY Writers' Conference and all that, Yeah, and they had, um, they, as part of they had a bequest from um Tennessee Williams estate so they had a bunch of money and they started the conference and and they also started this writing series uh, where they were publishing books for a few years through Overlook Press in um New York and um so they they called me once and said that uh you know my collection was up for consideration um and it was just a group of stories and I, my I, the way that I understand it was that Andrea Barrett, they had gone and asked different famous writers, do you have anybody you could recommend? So Andrea Barrett had given them my collection and a few others, um students of hers. And so, um, uh, you know, I didn't really even think that much of it because I wasn't sure it was a coherent piece of work myself. But about three months later, I got a call, and they wanted to to, to publish it and um, did a little bit of editorial, and it came out about, oh, it's like a scant seven or eight months later. Um, and then Houghton Mifflin bought it for paperback. So it went very – I mean, I didn't even have an agent. I didn't have anything with that. So
0: You must have been thrilled. That, that sounds lovely. <laughs>
2: It was it was really it was really exciting. But again, you know, um, my goals are some a little bit different. I think than some other writers. I just wanted um, I wanted to see it out there. I wanted people to read it. But I didn't have high expectations of my life changing because of it.
0: See, but that that seems like uh, again, it seems healthier because i I've, I've talked
2: to,
0: <laughs> I've talked to authors on this show, some of whom uh, I think suffer from. Uh, ambition or expectation, uh, and then other writers who are like, "There's no way I'm ever going to make money on this. I just do it because I love it," and they're yeah. com- and they're completely satisfied with that. And I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, but it does seem like um, approaching it in the way that you're talking about is probably less stressful.
2: Yeah, I think it hurts less. Yes, and I mean, you can put your real attention on you know trying to get something uh, right for you. You know, trying to tell a story you need to tell or want to tell or you know, are desperate to tell in some way.
0: So what about the novel? Like, so how did that, uh, you know, come, uh, come, to f- not- come to fruition, and then how did it find its way to uh, Penguin?
2: Okay, so this is where I knocked down every image of my life as the luckiest writer alive. Um, I um, I wrote a novel right after the short story collection because by then I was hearing, oh, now you've got to write a novel. And I did have an agent at that point. And so I wrote a novel um didn't know what i was doing um and i wrote it maybe 6 or 7 times and finally my agent said you know this is this is great let's send this out so it was sent out and it got a, it got a bunch of attention and it was really nice but nobody ended up taking it at you know so um, and then we got to this discussion where let's just put this one away in the drawer or, you know, you, if you want to try some university presses or whatever. And, and I realized I really didn't know what I was doing. So I went back to writing stories and I published a bunch of those and got together another collection. Um, and then um, then I had this idea for this story, something I really wanted to write. Um, it's um, it, it was sparked by this, this place called the Highway of Tears, Highway 16 up in British Columbia, which runs from Prince Rupert to Prince George, and it's the site of, over the last four decades, a lot of um, Native women, Indigenous women, have gone missing or been found murdered along that highway, and there hasn't been a lot of investigation in it until very recently. So I wanted to write something about that but not about that I just wanted to write something that was tangential to it that would put some attention up there and the story just started appearing um and it's long and entailed how I got there but eventually I had a draft and I sent it to my agent and she said this makes no sense really it was all over the place and so I rewrote it and we went back and forth a couple of times and finally one day she said I love this and sent it and it was sold within two days wow To okay,
0: okay yeah okay. Okay. Was, so stop right there because um First of all, when, you're, you know, when your agent says this makes no sense, some writers might react to that by being extraordinarily frustrated considering how much work has gone into the novel. And it makes sense to you. <laughs> but did, yeah, how, did, you, how, did you, <laughs> how, how did you process that news? Were you like, okay, I can go back in and, and make this make sense? Or were you uh, disillusioned for like a day or two?
2: Oh, yeah, you get the day or two of, it's like, oh, my God. You know, how could she not see this? This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I started going over her notes going, yeah, I can kind of see that. I can kind of see that. And um, we went back and forth. And finally, went, at one point when she said she still didn't understand what was happening, why, I went to Dickens, and, and I, instead of, of giving the chapters names, I would do, like, Chapter 4, in which such-and-such and such-and-such and such and such happens, and so-and-so meets so-and-so. And I would just spell it out in these, like, chapter headings. Um, And I sent that back to her. She goes, this is wonderful. I am getting now. (laughs) And I hadn't changed anything except these tiny little, you know, chapters. um, And then those went down to chapter titles, and that was the end of that. Um, And she got it, and the editors got it. So I think it was fine.
0: Okay, so was that the big, was really that the big um, fix that made it make sense and that got it sold in two days? Like, when you take it from this makes no sense at all to it's sold in two days to, uh, like, what did you fix? Yeah,
2: there was. There was a longer period of time in there. Um, You know, a a lot of it was was just streamlining and making things clearer. I have a tendency to put everything that I've ever thought in my life into a piece of work, and it, it takes me a while to realize that, the reader doesn't need to know all that, and I can pull back and just and, t- and streamline the story um, and get it down to its essentials and then see what I've got. And even though it seems like something I should have been doing from the very beginning, sometimes I'm so entrenched in the work, um, I, I just I can't see that part. And so my agent is great, and she's the person that will say, step back. Who's your agent? Again. Gail Hawkman.
0: Okay. I always ask that just because I feel like people listening will want to know, you know. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's a very intimate relationship, you know, for a writer and their a I mean, in the in the way that it works now, your agent is usually one of your first readers if not your first reader and He
2: also, is my first. Reader.
0: Yeah, and also functions as an editor, you know. That's really the Right. You know, it's a, it's definitely like I always hand whatever I write, I always hand it to my agent first and she's great about giving feedback. I mean, I guess that's part of the job, but it seems like the editorial capacity for agents has increased in the last several years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and so you find out with your agent as well that you have that relationship where she reads and tells you what's what. Yeah,
0: I mean, first reader, and it just—it's like—and you can, you need somebody that you can send something to where you're like, this is potentially embarrassing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And like, I know you, but I don't like really know you. And like, you don't know all my friends and everything. So this feels safe.
2: (laughs) Right. And you know, what's, what's good about Gail too, is that it is a discussion. It's not like she says this is wrong or whatever, um, or change this. It's not like that at all. It's like, I don't get this part. Right. And then I'll, I'll go back and, you know, we'll talk about it back and forth, you know, through email or whatever. And then, um, then I'll send her something else. I love, revising. I don't have any problem with revisions. So, um, and I, I, love hearing other people's ideas, but ultimately it comes down to what I think the work should be. So, and right. she's good with that.
0: Well, okay. So AWP now looming, like what's, what's your, what's your plan for the weekend? Like uh, by the time people listen to this, the weekend will be, uh, you know, nearing its
2: god Yeah. Um, I have to give a reading tonight at a little nightclub down in Belltown. And, um, so it's like, you know, eight minute readings with cocktails, which is always great. Yeah. And then um, then I'm just, you know, Brad, I'm, just, I'm here to visit with friends mostly. I'm, I have to do a panel presentation on Saturday on the Uncanny West um, and then uh, a signing, I think, on Friday. And um, those are my obligations. The rest of the time is just... You know, I'll pop in and out. I, you know, you can hardly get into the panels anymore. There's so many people here that there's such they're so crowded.
0: Well, and I was so gonna, a- I was going to say too, like all these readings, like offsite readings and everything. Yeah, I, I've heard over and over again from friends, um, you know, usually on Twitter, where it's like. Yeah, you know, I'm going up there to give a reading, and everybody I know is giving a reading at the same time as my reading. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah. Uh,
2: you know, it, it, the truth is, uh, I don't really understand. I mean, they're just they're just occasions for, um, I think for for groups of people to get together and enjoy each other's company. I don't think strangers too much wander into, you know, a literary review's reading and they don't know it and don't really care about it and go, wow, I'm so glad I did this. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I think it, it can happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, the off-site things, I, you know, have to pick and choose.
0: Sure. So, and then after AWP, are you, you have a like a book tour beyond.
2: Yeah, I do. I do. This, um, I'm you, going a bunch of places.
0: You excited? For High it?
2: spots like the Pardon? You excited? Yeah, um, I, I am because there are places uh, where I know people, and um, I really love talking about this book. I'll tell you, I love talking about this book, and I love reading from it. It's the first. It's the most enjoyable reading experience I've ever had. Um, and so it's it's been a really fun engagement with um, audiences that I've never had before. So, so when I, you say
0: when you say it's the most enjoyable reading experience that you've ever had, you mean like live reading, like when you're reading your own work?
2: Yeah. Not that yeah. it's like
0: the best book you've ever. I mean, not not that it would.
2: Oh God, really. no. Oh God, no. I don't mean that. Please take that back right away. Cut that out. Um, no, I don't mean that. I mean, it, I I have a lot of fun reading from the book. It's um you know the short stories. Um, I'm really language centered and. Um, the narrative may be a little bit slower. This novel rocks a little bit more, so I've got more exciting little pieces to read and more engagement with an audience. Well, it's, um, it's so fun it's...
0: When, you have, when you have work that plays well live, you know, that you can yeah, do scenes. Yes, exactly. That you...
2: That's what I meant to say. Yeah. You said it well. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, I, uh, I congratulate you on it. I hope you have fun this weekend and, and on the subsequent Thanks. tour, and I wish you all the best of luck.
2: Well, thank you. Thank
0: you. Thanks for having me on here. Okay, you guys, that's Adrienne Heron. Go get her novel. It is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain. It's available from Penguin. You can find Adrienne online at AdrienneHeron.com. And she's also on the Twitter, where her handle is at Adrienne Heron. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the very best way to listen to this program, you guys. you got to get the app. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just show up. You can download episodes to listen to offline. And best of all, you can access premium content and the program's full archives all via the app. So here's how it works. You go get the app. The app is free. And it's available for whatever device you might have. From there you get the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast for free. No charge. And then uh, if you want to access the archives and the other uh, 200-something episodes at this point, you sign up for premium and you sign up right there in the app. It costs $2, 2 bucks a month, and you get access to everything. Every single show, including my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, David Shields, Eric Larson, George Saunders, Sam Lipsight, Roxane Gay. Susan Orlean, Tyari Jones, Tao Lin. The list goes on. So please go get the app. The app is free. And then uh, sign up for premium right there in the app and support the show for a couple of bucks. I would appreciate that. Uh, Otherwise, what? It's still raining. And you want to know something funny. Because this is a, a desert location, because Los Angeles is in you know, like a, a desert, it, it cannot handle rain. The infrastructure of this city is not built for precipitation, meaning uh, the sewer systems and then just the natural terrain. So if you can imagine the ground and especially if you can imagine it in the wake of a, uh, significant drought, it's like hard, flat, baked desert earth. And then suddenly you throw in five inches of uh, rain and that rain will just sit there on top of that earth and it will pool And it will cause uh, flooding. (laughs) And then eventually it'll seep into the earth and that will uh, turn the earth into mud. And then the uh, earth will slide. And it will destroy things. So even when we get what we need, this is my point. Even when we get what we so desperately need, it turns into a disaster. (laughs) Isn't that how life is? Please remember that Anthony Trollope died of a stroke. And that Jackson Pollock once said, quote, when the canvas is on the floor, I feel closer to it. That is it for now. That's all. That's uh thanks to Adrienne Heron. Go get her novel. Uh, I'll be back again soon with another episode. There's some good ones coming up. And uh, what? <laughs> Follow me on Twitter at Brad Listy for stream of consciousness. Ban- uh, Blather. And then also uh, the show has a feed at other people pod for some additional uh, musing. Okay, get home safe from Seattle. Don't fall asleep uh, with your mouth open on the airplane. Don't do that. Just don't be that person. It's, a, it's an unattractive thing. Just put your head down on your tray table, uh, perhaps get a neck pillow, keep your mouth closed, or uh, perhaps if you're feeling courageous, you could rest your head on the shoulder of the stranger sitting next to you.